Listener Production. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is A Lie. Your mum will be a sex worker and you'll have no idea. There is nothing more profoundly irritating than being peppered with questions about the strange man who sleeps in your mum's bed when all you're trying to do is have fun at your fourth birthday party. But if he's not your dad, then who is he? How could I explain to this idiot that I didn't give a fuck who that man was? The more pressing issue was that this girl hurling questions in my face had decided to turn up at my fancy dress party in a costume that looked like some kind of unfortunate accident involving a fairy with sparkly diarrhea. I had tried to plan that damn party with an iron fist. If ever a four-year-old resembled a vicious and uncompromising dictator, it was me during the preparations for that celebration. First of all, aside from mandatory family members, I wanted no females involved. Invitations would be offered only to the boys from my preschool. I was a proud early adopter of feminism. Second, only I could dress as my hero and the one true god, Michelangelo, the Orange Ninja Turtle. Any embarrassing double-ups on that costume would result in immediate dismissal. Third, any girls who did attend, almost certainly against my wishes, needed to do so without any kind of tulle and or sparkly wing arrangement. Yes, it could be argued that I was being a tad controlling about the party situation, and also that I took being a tomboy to the extreme, but a couple of unfortunate bathroom mishaps in the preceding weeks meant I had some serious reputation repairing to do. Basically, I had embarrassed myself with shit, twice, and this party was a PR emergency. The poo towel had come first. I had been in the bathroom doing my business when I realised there was no toilet paper left. A mildly irritating occurrence for the experienced toilet goer, but for someone still relatively early in her solo toilet career, I was completely thrown off kilter. I sat on the toilet, perplexed, for at least ten minutes. I was honestly at a loss. Then Rhiannon started banging on the door, telling me to hurry up in that threatening yet somehow legal way older siblings tend to do. She had friends over and wanted to get back to whatever cool thing they were doing that I was never invited to join. In a panic, I spotted a towel hanging on the rack. I knew what had to be done. But just as I was completing the final wipe, making sure there were no brown bits left, an important lesson from mum, my sister barged through the door wanting to know what the hell was taking me so long. I froze, pants around my ankles, poo towel in hand. Obviously, Rhiannon immediately told everyone. All her friends barged through the door to get a good look and what little cred I had with the cool kids disappeared instantly. Now, the poo towel was bad, although I learned nothing. If I've ever been to your house and you failed to provide me with toilet paper, then I'd be washing all towels in your immediate vicinity. But to be honest, I probably could have lived with the shame of getting caught in the moment if it hadn't been for what had happened a few days earlier. Rhiannon's friends were over again, and because of some miracle that must have come directly from my hero, Michelangelo himself, they needed an extra person to make up the numbers for some game they were playing. I had no idea how it worked, but from what I could gather, it basically involved running around the house lots and lots and lots of times. I was just thrilled that three kids older than me were finally recognising my potential, despite the fact I had just days earlier been involved in the embarrassing poo towel incident. This complex running around the house game was my chance to make up for past mistakes and I was not going to blow it. Despite my complete lack of understanding of the point of the game, I ran around that house like my life depended on it. 
until I felt a fart coming. It stopped me cold. You see, farting is a dangerous game when you're still getting used to life without nappies. Each one can go either way, and while I had become fairly adept at recognising which ones would only involve air and which ones would need a toilet, I was still pretty inexperienced when it came to being in charge of my own bowel activities. I needed a minute to concentrate and figure out exactly what was going on down there, but I could see the other kids ahead of me and I wanted so badly to keep playing that I went for it. I closed my eyes and pushed, praying that the gamble would pay off. The shit that immediately started running down my leg was a fairly good indication that it hadn't. At this point, I had two choices. I could go back inside before anybody saw, have my mum clean me up and pretend like none of this had ever happened. But that would mean walking out on the game with the cool kids that I'd been desperate to play since I first saw them running nonsensically around the house. Alternatively, I could try and cover the mess as best I could and keep playing until they realised I was the lame poo-towel girl and start to question why they had invited me out there in the first place. I was certain I was playing against the clock anyway, so it made sense to try and squeeze in as much time with these guys as I could. I decided to go on with option number two. Playing with my older sister and her friends was just too good an opportunity to walk out on, no matter what had just taken place in my underpants. So I went into emergency cleanup mode. I figured if I could keep the situation contained to my undies, nobody would ever have to know. I used some leaves to wipe what had escaped down my leg. I scraped my hand onto a tree to get rid of any evidence and I continued running around the house like nothing had ever happened. It was Rhiannon who noticed first. What's that smell? She said, looking at me suspiciously. Everyone came to a halt. Did you fart? No, I screamed way too defensively for someone who currently had a massive shit smeared between her bum cheeks. Is that poo? My sister asked, pointing at my leg. I looked down. Damn, it was in fact poo. My emergency cleanup and containment plan had not yielded successful results. So that's how I found myself for the second time in three days, standing in the bathroom while being laughed at by the cool kids. I couldn't understand why mum had left the door wide open, but I was so paralysed by embarrassment that I couldn't bring myself to say anything. I will say this now, though. If ever there's a time for privacy, it's when you're bent over the sink while your mum wipes shit from your ass with a wet rag from the kitchen. So, given the unfortunate and embarrassing poo-related events of the preceding weeks, you can understand why I considered this birthday party my opportunity to show Rhiannon's friends that I was back on track. You know, life-wise. That's why I had organised the party with a miniature iron fist, and that's why I was so pissed off that I was now face-to-face with a pink human pastry puff asking me to explain my mother's sleeping arrangements. I knew Scott was my mum's friend. I knew he was a taxi driver. I knew that when we moved into his house, there weren't enough rooms for everybody, so he and my mum had to share. I knew that when I sometimes saw them naked, it was just because sometimes grown-ups sleep naked. I couldn't understand why it was so damn hard for this idiot standing in front of me to comprehend. Doesn't everybody's mum sleep naked with her friend Scott, the taxi driver? It was perfectly acceptable to me that theirs was a friends-only arrangement. But I guess you don't question that stuff when you're just trying to get through life without shitting your own pants more than twice in a week. How could I possibly have known that mum and Scott met when he used to drive her home after her long shifts as a sex worker? How could I possibly have known that on those 3am taxi rides he had fallen in love with her ridiculous beauty and decided he could save her? How could I possibly have known that he moved us into his house and that's why we couldn't live with the girls near the brothel anymore? Come to think of it, how could I possibly have known that was a brothel? 
How could I possibly have known that when my mum accepted his offer of a boob job, she also accepted his offer of a cheap home for her children so she could stop selling her body and go back to the far less lucrative profession of nursing? All I knew was that we lived with my mum's friend Scott and they shared a room because there wasn't enough space. Had I been faced with this human chill diarrhea explosion later in life, I would have been able to give her cake-smeared face a far more detailed answer. But in that moment, dressed as Michelangelo, the orange ninja turtle at my fourth birthday party, trying desperately to make up for some embarrassing toilet mishaps from my recent past, I was in no position to tell that girl anything. It was only much later that I was able to piece together some of the details, but it's still difficult to understand how a girl went from an exclusive private school on the North Shore to the parking lot of a brothel in Wagga Wagga. My mum was abandoned the moment she was born. Her mother was 16, terrified, and sent away to another state to give birth in secret. The moment my mum came into the world, she was wrapped in a blanket and ushered out of the room, the exhausted teenage girl who had just delivered her not even allowed to see her face. She did name her, though, Catherine. Within days, Catherine was adopted by an upper-middle-class couple that couldn't have children of their own. They already had two adopted sons but desperately wanted a girl. They renamed their new daughter Lisa, and just like that, Catherine had been erased. But even in her new life, her better life, Mum was always filled with so much sorrow. It's almost like something in her knew she had been Catherine before she had been Lisa, and she couldn't handle the pain that came with knowing her birth mother hadn't wanted her. As long as I've known her, my mum has felt abandoned and alone, and from what I can tell, she always did. Raised on Sydney's leafy and affluent North Shore, my mum, along with her two adopted brothers, attended some of the best private schools in the country. Every opportunity was afforded to her, but she just couldn't seem to stay out of trouble. She was a bad girl, at least as bad as you can be when you're a privileged white kid from Taramara. I think there was a bit of smoking behind the toilets and kissing boys and sneaking out after 8pm, that sort of scandalous thing. She was moved to a country boarding school, but after she was expelled, her parents grew increasingly frustrated. This was not the girl they had signed up for. She was fiercely intelligent, popular and creatively gifted, but she was also incredibly self-destructive. She spent some time at secretarial school, some time at nursing school, but mostly she just wanted to party with her friends. She would later be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but at the time, everyone just considered her an insufferable, rebellious teen. Her parents kicked her out of the house, and she immediately went on to make a series of ridiculously bad life decisions, the first of which was my dad, Tony. After meeting in a share house, they quickly became inseparable. He was 11 years older than her and married at the time they met. He had no job, drank heavily, and did a lot of drugs. All qualities that clearly scream good catch. After leaving his wife to be with mum, he started controlling and abusing her almost immediately. My mum worked as a nursing assistant to support them both, then became pregnant with Rhiannon. I'm assuming at that point she was the only 20-year-old alumna from Ravenswood School for Girls living in a share house bedroom and pregnant with an abusive junkie's baby. Things got worse when she finally connected with her birth mother. Theirs is an incredible story, the kind that should have ended like a quirky Nora Ephron film, but instead ended like Requiem for a Dream, except with Darth Vader telling Luke he's his father instead of the double dildo scene. My mum had always known she was adopted. It wasn't kept secret in her family. So as soon as she could put her name on a list to try and connect with her birth mother, she did it. 
She had been following the work of a woman called Kate, an academic who worked with local adoption support groups and had written a book about women who had given up their children during the 50s, 60s and 70s. My mum had the book in her nightstand and fantasised about her own mother being one of the women featured in it. How incredible would it be to find out your adoption was coerced and your mother had actually wanted you all along? Just a few weeks after registering her name, my mum got the call. Her birth mother had been located and she had been in my mum's nightstand the entire time. Kate, the academic and adoption rights advocate whose work my mum had been following, was in actual fact her birth mother. And it turns out, though they may have tried, my adopted grandparents hadn't managed to erase all trace of Catherine the day they renamed my mother Lisa. There, on the front page of Kate's book, was a dedication for Catherine. My mum immediately assumed that her adoption had been forced. This woman had dedicated her life's work to sharing stories of those who had been heartbreakingly affected by the adoption process. Her book was dedicated to the daughter she had lost, to her. The part inside of my mum that had always felt abandoned was desperate to know that it hadn't been her mother's choice. But it had been her choice. Kate, a straightforward and often harsh woman. Are you all right, mum? Mum's crying. Are you all right? Okay. Kate, a straightforward and often harsh woman, told my mum that while she had struggled with the loss of her daughter, she still knew it was the best thing for both of them at the time. Their relationship was strained from that point, disappointment on both sides, simmering tensions. My mum had hoped for a warm and loving woman who had always been desperately looking for the baby that was stolen from her. Instead, she found a woman who was cold, overly academic and very open about the fact she had wanted the adoption. Kate had hoped for a strong, independent and driven feminist, hopefully at university and on her way to incredible things. Instead, she found an unmarried 20-year-old with a kid, a woman who liked to drink and do drugs and was living with an abusive alcoholic 11 years her senior. Neither of them was particularly impressed with the other. They tried having a relationship. Kate even found my mother an apartment and helped her escape my dad, a plan that fell to pieces when my dad moved in anyway and within days had threatened the landlord with a gun, as was his way. Far from the relationship they had hoped for, mother and daughter continued to confound and exasperate each other. Then, during a fight, Kate told my mother that if abortion had been available to her back in 1963, she would have taken that option. It's a story I've heard my mum tell through drunken tears many times. As someone who wasn't even born when all this went down, I have the benefit and the curse of only being able to piece together a narrative from what I've been told by various characters who were part of the action. I don't know how angry the two of them were. I don't know if voices were raised. I don't know what kind of infuriating thing my mother had done to upset Kate or if she had done anything at all. But I do know that Kate said it and that it broke something in my mum that could never be repaired. Forget being erased. Now it was like Catherine had never existed at all. My mum had hoped that finding her birth mother would melt away the feelings of loneliness and abandonment. Instead, she just felt the darkness cement itself in her body. A darkness that would lead to alcoholism, drugs, suicide attempt after suicide attempt, and eventually, in a bizarre circle of life type of scenario, the state removal of her own children. Her adopted and birth mothers had both given up on her. The loneliness she had been afraid of her whole life was now a heavy reality in the pit of her stomach. So when my dad, the only person who had stuck around so far, suggested she try her hand at sex work to support the family, she did it. 
After Dad had his little firearm run-in with the landlord and unsuccessfully tried to be a drug dealer, we were stuck in hiding, living near his parents in Tumut, a small country town in the west of New South Wales. My mum decorated cakes and Easter eggs for the local bakery, but with two kids, I had conveniently made my appearance by this stage, and an abusive partner with drinking and drug habits to support, she needed a lot more than bakery-level money. She looked in the paper and saw that there were some places in Wagga Wagga that she could go. Wagga was the closest thing Tumut had to a city. It was about an hour away and where married Tumut couples went when they wanted a fancy night on the town. It was also a popular destination for long-haul truck drivers who used it as a place to stop and get some. My mum hooked up with one of the local brothels and got to work. Just a few years earlier, she had been getting in trouble for not polishing her school shoes. I once asked her about the first time, about the first client she ever worked with. She said they were in a tiny motel room. He was short and bald and asked her to rub coconut oil all over his shiny head as some kind of sick, slick foreplay. She said the oil stank and as he was thrusting into her, it took everything she had not to vomit. When it was over, she couldn't believe what she had done and spent the whole night trying to wash the smell of the oil off her hands. Even though it was 25 years later, she still cried a little when she told me she would never, ever forget that smell. But as awful as it was, she had children to feed and a violent partner to keep liquored up. So every weekend, my mum would drive out to Wagga and make as much money as she could. Then something in her clicked. She realised she was beautiful and educated and that working in a brothel for truck drivers in fucking Wagga was way below her league. She decided that if she was going to have to sell herself, she was going to be smart about it. So she moved back to Sydney and set herself up as a high-class escort. With some financial independence, she was able to break things off with my dad. They fought over custody of us for a while, but it could be argued that in a fight between an unemployed alcoholic and a 22-year-old escort, there aren't really any winners. We ended up with Mum, who had somehow ended up with Scott the taxi driver, the first of many men she hoped would save her. She had become excellent at using her very specific set of skills to work with men. Even after she stopped having sex for money, men would always be like a job in her life, a way to survive. Each man was a shift she had to get through, and one day, if she worked hard enough and played her cards just right, she'd finally be able to clock off. Scott, the taxi driver, was just her latest shift. But I knew none of that at my fourth birthday party. I didn't know the very sad and bizarre sequence of events that had led to my mum sharing a bed with her friend, Scott, the taxi driver. I didn't know that when she got sick of sharing that bed, we would end up as far away as Hawaii. I didn't know that there would be many more embarrassing poo-related disasters in my life to come, and this party was just the start of my quest to impress the cool kids. All I knew was that I didn't want to be answering that damn question from a girl dressed as fairy diarrhea. And even if I had wanted to explain my mother's sleeping arrangements, I didn't know how. So I looked her up and down, and making absolutely no attempt to hide the disdain on my face, I said, Your disgusting dress is ruining my party. Please leave and come back as a Ninja Turtle. That's it, Mama. You're crying. <coughs> yeah, it's all right. Why were you sad? Oh, I don't know. Just You, know. you made me almost cry, but I had to read. <laughs> Sometimes it, you can't stop the emotion. What part made you start crying? I just about Kate, your birth mother. Yeah. Why? It was it's just, it was just a really difficult time for me, you know. So yeah. When you first met her, mm. d- 
Did I get the details of that right? Yeah. I was going off what I remembered, off you having the book and not realising that that was her. And I know she worked for, what was it called? Adoption Triangle. Triangle, Adoption Triangle. When she died a few years ago, they um, said some really nice stuff about her because Adoption Triangle still exists. Yeah, I think that she worked tirelessly. Mm. But I think in a lot of respects it was due to selfish reasons. What do you mean? Well, the fact that she was looking for me. So, But then she found you and it was kind of like disappointing think, for both of you. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she did that much work for them after, you know. I'm not sure. But oh, really? Yeah, I think she was instrumental in having some um, laws changed and that kind of thing. What, to make it easier to find kids who had been adopted? Yeah, out? yeah. Did you hope... And, you know, privacy um, stuff. Did you hope that, um, that you had been maybe removed forcibly? No, I never, I never thought that. You knew you'd been given up willingly? Yeah, of course. You said um, to me once that it upset you that her book that she wrote um, about women who had had their kids either taken away against their will or who had given them up willingly in the 50s and 60s, the book's called Living Mistakes, and that really upset you. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a bit of a difficult title, isn't it? Yeah. Like, am I the living mistake? <laughs> Do you feel like you are? Well, it was a mistake she made, I suppose. Mm. But ultimately, here I am. <laughs> are you sad? And that- I actually, I spoke to another woman who had been adopted and she knew the book very well. And um, a lot of people who were adopted actually... Um, really disliked the name of the book as, book as well. Mm. Very much so, actually. So, really? Yeah. They just found it to be a distasteful title. Yeah. Were you sad that when she died, like, you hadn't really... So your relationship kind of fell apart. You hadn't talked to her in years and years and years. Yeah, I was very sad. I mean, Rhiannon and I went to live with her for a while. Yeah. When we were kids because... You, oh, you're crying again. Do you want no, to it's all right. Her? When we were kids, when you were in rehab and stuff, um, and she was a pretty cold woman. Like, I liked living with her because she was a writer, and so she was the first person I ever met in my family who I felt like I could understand that I came from her. Like, she was a writer, she was an academic, she encouraged me as a writer. Like, I felt like I could see myself in her, which I hadn't really felt with anyone else in the family before. But also living with her was really hard. She was very cold and she was very harsh. She wasn't very loving or maternal. And so Mm. I can't imagine how disappointing that would have been for you at the time when you were, you know, when you finally found her and she wasn't what you were expecting. Yeah, I know. She wasn't a very warm woman, was she? No, she really wasn't. (laughs) No, she wasn't. She really wasn't. Yeah. And I was starving the whole time I lived with her because for lunch she only gave us two sayos with Vegemite. I know. That's why I made friends with the girl whose mum worked in the canteen so she'd give me free ice cream. No wonder. Yeah. I was smart. (laughs) She was very strict with food intake, wasn't she? She was very strict about stuff like that. What it seems. Probably the thinnest I've been in my life when I lived with Kate. (laughs) <laughs> and went to Birchgrove Public. Um, she didn't like Dad. <gasps> she 
Hated your father. Oh, my God. Well, because he was a bit of a dropkick, let's be honest. With a passion, she disliked him. Well, you know, he was fairly close in age to her. Ew, I think that. No, I think that was what she disliked the most. He was 11 years older than you, and she'd only had you. 11 and a half. 12 and a half years old. 12 and a half years older than you. Uh, and she'd only had you when she was like a teenager. No, so they no, were. She, like you got, you got the age wrong there. How old was she? She was 19. Right. So she, <laughs> she was closer in age she, to him she than just to turned you. 19. Ew, that's gross. Ew. No, I'm, I'm just pointing that out. Plus, I think she was disappointed. Well, that, because he was the worst. Yeah, she was disappointed that I was with someone like that. Had you already had Rhiannon when you when you met her? Yeah. So you had a kid. You were with this alcoholic, abusive weirdo who didn't work. Yes. She got you this apartment to try and help you escape from him. Escape from him, yeah. And then you let him move in. <laughs> yeah, I did. So that really pissed her off. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then, well, she came around and he... What happened when he threatened the <laughs> landlord with a gun? What was his problem? That's really why, why no, are you that laughing. Was, that was a few. That was quite a few months later. That was just before we escaped to Tumut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> from the drug dealers. But why did he threaten the landlord with a gun? Because we hadn't paid the rent for for weeks. So basically, the landlord had come around personally. Yeah. And um, threatened us with eviction. And your dad went and. Got this shotgun, sawn-off shotgun he'd made. She <laughs> threatened him. I don't know why the police never came round. I think it was pretty close. Because he probably scared the shit out of yeah, him. Yeah, I think why. it was. I think, and we knew where he lived. <laughs> he was petrified. So he was probably a bit worried. He was probably a bit worried about you that. Petrified him. So um, he didn't come and bother us, bother us again for a little while. Right. But we, um, well, that's understandable. So Kate wasn't pleased then. No, we just disappeared. We didn't even tell her we were leaving. When you escaped to Tumut? We didn't tell anyone. We just took off. And so how long were you in Tumut for before you started doing sex work? And I know we've argued about this because I thought that you worked in shitty brothels and gave truckies handjobs, but that no, really never. <laughs> Apparently I, I got never that did any really such wrong. thing. And, explain and I, to me then. Explain to me when you first did it and it, why, how you decided to do it. How I ended up doing it? Yeah. I had this friend who was very unhappily married to this yobbo. In Tumut. From Tumut. Yeah. And she'd taken off and left her husband Joe and gone to Wagga mm. and left her children with Joe. And she then started working for this place called Night Owls. Night Owls. In Wagga Wagga, okay, oh, that was an escort agency. It wasn't a brothel at all. There is a difference. And Sorry, um, Sorry Mum. So that's where I, I got the idea from. I'd done a couple of shifts at the nursing home around the corner, but mm. I knew there just wasn't enough money to get out of Tumut and I And Dad had didn't to, work. I no. He never worked. Or he had one little job for a couple of months. Mm. But um I knew that that was the only opportunity I had. I wasn't getting enough money at the nursing home around the corner and the only way to get out of Tumut, which was absolutely destroying me, mm. was to do that. And so Dad didn't care? Well. Like, don't you think that's just 
I presume he did care, but it was my money. He wasn't getting it. So you didn't give him any no. of that money that you made? No. See, no, I thought I? he encouraged you to do I le- it. I'd left him. See, I didn't know this. I'd left him. So where were you living? Get, I was living in Wagga, of course. I left him to so you left get us. the money to leave, to move to sit back to Sydney. So you left me and Rhiannon at home with Dad, a drunk well, he wasn't psycho. That, no, he wasn't that bad then. Oh, yeah, right. Thanks, Mum. Well, he was that what bad. What else then. was I to do? I had to. I had to get out of there. And I had to, you know, make the opportunities open for like Sydney, getting renting a house and all the rest of it, which I did. So I didn't know. I thought you only went to Wagga on weekends, but you fully no. left us alone with him. Yes, right. So I used to go and visit. Tell me about the first, the very first time you did it. See, I know it was that bald guy with the oil, but I got the oil wrong. I said it was coconut oil. No, it's Canadian poppy hair oil. Canadian poppy hair oil. He was an old grazier. He'd come to town, I think, once once a month. Like a farmer. Is that a farmer? He was a, yeah, grazier, like, you know. And he'd come to come to town once a month. To like because he was, for that he specific was a single reason. Man. He probably lived in the middle of nowhere. Well, that's fair enough. So you he, were providing he, a service. He got himself a a room in a crappy old motel, motel with um, faded carpet, and <laughs> and he picked you. No, he didn't pick me. Well, how did it work? It wasn't a it wasn't a brothel. Well, tell you know, me parade how it worked. In front I don't of know. Tell the me. The owner of Nighthouse, Melissa, yeah, sent out a girl appropriate to the needs of the client. What were the needs? You know what? what well, sex. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. When you say what needs. Else would they, no, but what, else you, would, <laughs> what else would they be rigging up a. No, but when you say needs, I, I'm thinking that there's like some weird specific no. stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, Lisa can do that because <laughs> no. he wanted the poppy oil or whatever it was rubbed on his head. Canadian poppy oil. Yeah, it's right. Very, apparently it's very famous. So that was the first, your very first client. Yeah. How did you feel after Pretty. that? Dreadful. He was really? pretty. Like he was, like I was only pretty young, you know what I mean? Well, I, was, I think I was 23. Yeah, because I was just a baby. So you were 23. Or something, 23 and a half. He was probably 60. Ew. Probably. I don't know. He was pleasant enough, man. So what? I just got on with it. Thought, oh, well, a couple of dollars, a lot more than what I'd get. How much in, did you make for an that? An enrolled nurse. I can't remember now. But enough to make it worth it. Probably a hundred bucks, which is a hell of a lot of money back then. This was 1986. Yeah. Yeah. hundred dollars for one hour. Shit, that's good. Yeah, it was good money. It's more than what I make. What are your thoughts on sex work? I mentioned in my show, in my stand-up show yeah. uh, last year, yeah. that... Um, I specifically wrote in the book sex work because that is the respectful term that you're meant to use these days. But when I told you that, it kind of annoyed you because you were like, oh, I was a prostitute. No, I never said I was a prostitute. You did say we had this conversation. I say, and I always have, I was an escort, Rosanna. You were an escort. I was an escort, not a prostitute, thank you. So that word bothers you. I don't know. It, no, but it, it's okay. It's you're not meant to use it. It's an offensive word. Well, you're I not meant it, to use well, it. That's the reason. Probably the reason. And I that's why in the book I said sex work. But this, 
when you were drunk once, we had a conversation and you said that it annoyed you that I'd used the term sex work in the book because no, no, you felt no. like it minimised the, ne- like no, no, the negative I would experience never, I would never call myself a prostitute. I was an escort. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, what are your thoughts on being an escort and on sex work then? Are I you think, glad that you did it? Yes. I think it's an honourable profession. It helped you escape dad. Well, it did. Mm-hmm. And it gave me financial freedom. But then later dad got custody of us because because you were no, an escort, right? it wasn't because I was an escort at all. You told me that. Was, you told no, me that dad and grandpa went to court. That wasn't the reason. Dad and grandpa went to court and got custody of me and Rhiannon and you couldn't afford to hire a lawyer and they made you look really bad because you were doing sex work. Yes, they made, yes, they made me look bad. Yeah. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Because everyone seems to have this stereotype. Yeah, and Dad and Grandpa used that against you. Well, they did, yes. You're right there. They even sent a private investigator to pretend to be a client. Oh, my. Stop it. What? At Mossman once and sent him out to um, bust me. Did he bust you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) He ended up. Having sex. What a perv. And he of said, course he did. He what said, a dirty I'm not gonna, perv. And he said, I'm not going to say anything to them. That he And, like, they'd pay. Oh, because you were that good, huh? No, they li- he liked <laughs> me because I got I was in there and this was in Mossman in a hotel there and I was telling him about my children and all my enthusiasm about my children, how mm. I was I was trying to get my children back. Mm. And he'd been hired by your father and grandfather for the court case. You see, and this guy just thought, this woman's a really nice woman. I really like her. So he had sex with you. <laughs> yeah, God. He wouldn't have wanted to tell his wife, would he? he did that. No, but he... he and then he, he, gross. He, he got he got paid because he was a private investigator. Yeah. and um, But he didn't give he, them anything. No, he didn't give anything for court. Well, you are a very charming, likeable person, Mum. Yeah, Everybody says so. Okay. Not everyone. You don't all the time. Well, that's because <laughs> you drive me crazy since we live together. Okay. You talk too much and you fart too much. Okay. Well, there's no need to mention that. I had to warn. It's very uncouth, you know I that. had to warn you not to fart in yes, the studio okay. today. Jesus, Rosie's. <laughs> Nothing sacred? No. Holy cow. Can't wait till we get some of the later chapters in the book where I'm doing embarrassing sex stuff. Yeah, anyway, okay. I don't know whether I'll partake in those. No, you have to. No, I don't have to. I already told you I wasn't. I didn't really want to. It's interesting to me that it's harder for you to do talk about the chapters where I'm having sex than it is to talk about chapters like this. Yeah, but you're my daughter. It's normal not to want to have anything to do with it. But you're not embarrassed telling me about your sex work? Well, I am uncomfortable, actually, but I know it's part of this podcast. That it has to be discussed. It is very generous. Some people would be quite interested in hearing someone's point of view. No, that's why I want to ask you. It is, and I will take this moment to say it's very generous of you to do this, Mum. Okay. It wouldn't be easy. I mean, you were crying five minutes ago. No, no, no. That was like the emotional upset of adoption and all that. Mm. It still affects people into their fifties. What are your thoughts on adoption now? It's a very, it's a very good thing. If a person can't bring up their own child for whatever reason. See, I worry about it, though, because I see that being adopted had a profound effect on you that just could never be changed. But, you know, that was the way my life was obviously supposed to unfold. Mm. It would have been totally different 
if I hadn't uh, been adopted, you wouldn't exist, for instance. Mm. My whole life would have been totally different. I believe that there's certain directions that you are supposed to follow in life and that's just one that was given to me. Can we talk about when Kate told you that she would have had an abortion if she could? Yeah, that was a bit distressing. She'd had a few too many gin and tonics, I believe. Oh, really? She was sitting there with Catsy Glad and they were, like, discussing crap as they usually did, those two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... How did um, it come up? She was just talking in conversation to Catsy and I was there sitting at the kitchen table at Birch Grove. And she said in front of you that she would have had an abortion. Yeah, if it was she available, could. she said she would have had an abortion. How did that make you feel? Well, extremely distressed, actually. I mean, I didn't start crying or anything, but I thought, geez, you know, what a thing to say. I mean, even if you if you had have wanted to, you wouldn't think you'd actually say it. So she did have a little bit of a cruel twist, that lady, in mm. her personality. Yeah. I don't know if it was cruelty, though. I think she was cruel. just ex- she was extremely um, pragmatic and cerebral and often she didn't realise that she was being hurtful. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I probably would have been a slightly different person if she had raised me. But then again... As you were saying, she didn't show much love. No, she didn't. Or affection towards people. Mm. So, I mean... But you didn't have a perfect relationship with your adoptive parents either. It sounds like that was really dysfunctional. No. Yeah, that's true. So it wasn't easy. No, it wasn't easy. There either. No. Do you think there's a reason you, like, rebelled the way you did so young and ended up with dad and ended up in sex work and with kids when you were only... 23. Like, I tried to write it as best as I could in the book, but, you know, that was just from my point of view. I mean, I don't know. I I assumed it had a lot to do with the adoption and had a lot to do with your feelings of abandonment, and, and but that was just speculative on my part from conversations I'd had with you. Mm. And over the years, the conversations I've had with you have mostly been when you've been really drunk. So mm. I don't know if even a lot of that stuff is accurate. I don't know. I just took the wrong path, I suppose. Were you just a naughty girl and then it just went the wrong way? I was a bit rebellious. I mean, at 14 I'd be told one thing and I'd do the opposite. Mm. And that's when I started saying to mum and dad, um, you're not my parent, you're not my real parents anyway. Mm -mm -mm. I mean, you've got no right to tell me what to do. So get stuffed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the family regularly went out for dinner and things like that. And, like, I just got sick again to another bloody French restaurant, you know what I oh mean? Oh, my God. That is the <laughs> richest white girl North Shore, most privileged thing I've ever heard anyone say in my life. No. I was... Oh, another French <laughs> restaurant. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> what just... a tough life. No, get effed. You get sick. I got sick of it and I wanted to go out with my friends that night. Gotcha. And I was told, okay, we're going out to such and such restaurant tonight, you know, or Italian or Beppies or the bloody Abbey or God knows what other restaurant it was. So we're going out and I thought, oh, mate, I don't want to go out. Yeah, and I said, right. I'm not going. I'm not going out. Yes, you are, Lisa. Be ready at such and such a time. You're like Veruca Salt. So anyway, <laughs> instead of going with them, I went and... 
hid. I hid and I went out with my friends anyway. So I was a bit, yes, I was a bit naughty. I started doing things like that. Mm. Like, mm. We should wrap up, Mum. Okay. I just want to quickly ask you, you just drop these major bombshells just at random times. And well, you can't know everything about your mother. Because we've been living together, um, you keep telling me this random stuff. And the other night at dinner a few weeks ago, mm. you mentioned um, that you had gone to see Cats, the musical. Oh, yes. That was fantastic. In 1988. <laughs> yes. With yes. probably the most high class, majorly big deal client that no, you had, he was, right? No, he was just the the secretary to the secretary of... I don't know if we can really say. Well, <laughs> he I was a very high up well, person in the, Amer- in the US government. Yeah, I know. Who was here. Yes, I know. And he took you on Air Force One. Yeah, when he was when he was leaving, I went on Air Force One. <laughs> Mum, what the hell? And you just casually tell me that at dinner? Well, I don't know. I just remembered. You've it. been on Air Force One. Yeah. And then we were trying to Google who it was, but you couldn't remember his name. No, so we he was really, really high up. He was j- j- no. I I was going out. I went out with the secretary of the Joint Chief of Staff or something. I'm pretty sure we got. And I went out and, yeah, we all went in a big group, including the chief of staff's um, personal physician. So he took you to it see was a Cats. Great, yeah, right in the front row. It was fantastic. And I loved took, it. took you to see Cats front row and on Air Force One. Yeah, I went there um, when they left from the airport. Yeah, he, let, he got me a pass to go on. All right, well. Yeah. I guess we can finish up there. Okay. Finish up with, with you starting with that bald guy in Wagga Wagga and ending on Air Force One. Thanks, Mama. Okay, darling. In the next episode... Did he actually collapse, though? He pretended he was like half dead. Well, did you not stab him with a stiletto? No, I didn't stab him at all. I wha- I wha- the only th- weapon I had was my shoe. Well, yeah, I whacked a him over massive top of man the head. was getting violent, so you whacked, whacked him, him with, with your my shoe. shoe. Yeah, and then the military police come and arrest me and take, take what? They arrest me and they take me off to the where the, the military people where they get in trouble and they're taken to the cells. You went to military jail. Yeah, God, you've had the best life. This is Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. Listener.